Well, as always, uh, so great to be with you. Uh, if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, let me encourage you and let me invite you to turn with me uh, to the passage that was just read, First um, Peter chapter 3. Uh, and as you're turning there, let me just set the groundwork uh, for our time together today. Uh, the book of First Peter, we know, was written by the Apostle Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, uh, a follower of Jesus, a devoted follower of Jesus, uh, a man who was actually once a, a cowardly uh, fisherman who Jesus changed, Jesus transformed into a bold proclaimer of the gospel. And while this letter, I think we've seen over the last however months we've been in this, uh, communicates so many profound truths to us, we know that the main purpose of this letter is to help followers of Jesus uh, navigate life in a world that is not their true home. And to do that, uh, for the first chapter and a half, Peter starts by reminding Christians of who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. All sorts of encouragement to that end. And then out of that understanding of who we are in Christ, Peter then shifts to tell us how we are supposed to then live. And in this, or in that, one of the major themes uh, that we see Peter address uh, again and again is this idea of suffering. Suffering. We actually see throughout First Peter, if you were to skim through it and start counting, uh, you would actually find the idea of suffering or the word suffering mentioned 17 times altogether in this little short letter. And that's because of the reality that for those who follow Jesus, for those who belong to Jesus, we will suffer for Jesus' sake. It's not if we'll suffer, it's when we'll suffer. We will face heartache, hardships, The scriptures tell us we'll face trials of many kinds for our allegiance to Christ. That was true for the people that Peter originally wrote to, and it's certainly true for us here now. In fact, uh, I did a little research this week. Did you know that um, even now, 2020, 2021, that Christians are Far and away, by far, the most persecuted people on the planet. One recent study that was put together by a group, some of you have heard of it, the Voice of the Martyrs. They're really focused on um, unreached people groups in dangerous parts of the world. They estimated that last year, 2020, over 100 million Christians wake up every day in a context where their life is at stake. Where they, are, they wake up and they are in imminent danger and could die at any moment for their faith in Jesus. Over 100 million believers across our globe. And of course, while I know that this is, that's not our context uh, here in, in Korea, we're not going to go to prison for preaching the gospel, at least yet. We're not going to uh, uh, be put to death for proclaiming the name of Christ, at least not yet. While that's not our context, we do know 
that, that heartache and, and hardships come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, so again, while we're not going to be directly or physically persecuted for our faith in Jesus here in Korea, we will still be dismissed, rejected, hurt, uh, misunderstood, and again, face trials of all sorts of kinds. Maybe you experience this yourself, maybe in the workplace, uh, maybe in your, your school, uh, maybe amongst your, your non-believing friends. They just think like, what, what do you, you really believe that? Like, you're out there, kind of weird. Maybe it's even within your own family. Some of you, you moved over to Korea, um, you're here, and some of you have like a missional mindset for being here in Korea, and your family just doesn't understand. Why would you ever be in Korea? Like, come home. What, what are you doing over there? What's your, what's your purpose over there? Some of you might be facing that today. And I know for, for me, and I'm sure this is true of you, uh, that when we, face, when we face genuine trials, when we are confronted with true hardships, it's so easy to think, what's the point of all of this? Like, I know I've been there even this past season. Like, God, life is just, it's too hard. It's too difficult to be a follower of Jesus. It's just too difficult to live for you in the midst of this chaotic world. And so, is it really worth it all? Is it worth it? And if you've ever been in that place in your life, or maybe you're in that season of life right now, you're hurting, maybe you're you're in the midst of a deep trial. Maybe you're, you're suffering. Uh, this message today uh, is for you. And I just want to say this before we dive in. Um, if you, you were reading along with that passage uh, that Mark was reading, and you were reading and you were trying to follow along, and you were like, huh? <laughs> or what in the world is Peter saying there? Some of you read it through and you're nodding your head like, that's God's word, I approve, and you have no idea what it just said. Um, just know, just know this morning, um, you're in really good company. Um, each week that I prepare to preach uh, and teach God's word, I am, I am fully aware, I, I want you to know this, maybe I've never said this before, hopefully you, you see that, but I am, I am fully aware of my need for the Lord's help. I need the Holy Spirit uh, to guide me in this. And that's definitely the case with this text here this morning. Um, by Christian scholars, like experts of the New Testament, um, it is almost universally agreed that this text is, is a challenge. Some commentaries I read, um, literally, it would say things like this. This text is obscure. Another one. Uh, what Peter says here is problematic. Um, the majority view, this text from 1 Peter is considered universally to be the most difficult passage to understand in all the New Testament. But... My favorite comment on this passage comes from 
the brilliant, the brilliant church father, Martin Luther. He was reading through 1 Peter, wrote a commentary on it, and this is what he said as he reflected on 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. I love this. It's great. This is what he said. A wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it. Ready? And there has, not, there has been no one who has explained it. And so bottom line this morning... There doesn't appear to be much hope for me. <laughs> which, means, uh, which means, of course, there's not a lot of hope for you. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, uh, in light of the, the task uh, that we're faced with today, that I'm faced with today, with with. Uh, with deep fear and trembling, um, here is how we're going to proceed with this very difficult passage. I'm going to set some ground rules for how we're going to approach this. First, we're going to go into this text this morning with the understanding that this passage was not difficult to the original hearers and readers. They understood what Peter meant. Maybe they were having conversations together about this. And now he's writing to them and making these obscure references. And they were like, oh yeah, I remember when we were in that house church and Peter was telling us about all that. I believe that wholeheartedly. To them, they understood this and were able to apply it to their context. Second, I want us to continually, as we study this text, continually remember the overall context of Peter. It's going to help us a lot. That Peter writes, his purpose in writing this letter is to encourage and comfort those who were suffering for the gospel in a world that was not their true home. Okay? And then finally, finally, We're going to be cautious, I'm going to be cautious, with the difficult and debatable texts while being intentionally focused on the parts of this text that are abundantly clear. And I I think when we do all of that together, keeping all this in mind, what you're going to find this morning is the same thing that I found in my study this week that this is actually one of the most beautiful, not the most difficult, yes, it's difficult, but at the same time, it's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in all the New Testament. I believe, I really believe this, that you're going to be greatly encouraged today. I know for me, after studying this text, um, it just left me, last night, it just left me just wanting to celebrate um, and, and worship the Lord. Even though I went to bed late studying this, it's the earliest I've woken up in a while for a sermon. I was just like, I am so not ready and ready at the same time. Let's go. Let's do this. Um, I couldn't wait. I just, it's an amazing text. So, um, are you ready? Are you ready? (laughs) Let's jump in, uh, beginning with verse 18. We're going to get really far uh, this morning as we start. Peter says this, 
for, and we stop. We're going to focus on what I'm sure about. <laughs> for. <laughs> it's actually, that word's really important to the text, okay? That's not a joke. <laughs> really important. Um, Peter starts by saying the word for, because this is clearly meant to bring our attention back to verse 13 through 17, which we looked at last week, where Peter told us to have a godly confidence in our suffering. Have a godly confidence in your suffering. He says there, um, even if you suffer for righteousness, he says, verse 14, have no fear. Don't be troubled. And then verse 17, he concludes with this. This is key to our passage today. He said this in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, then he, he shifts. We get to verse 18. And now here, Peter is explaining the why. The why from verse 17. Okay? That's the context or the question that Peter is attempting to answer for us in verses 18 through 22. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? That's what he's answering here. And then he explains that, and we're going to segment our time together in these three three ways. Peter looks at Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' ascension to help us understand why it's better for us to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. So now we can go into the text. Starting with Jesus' death, that's where we start. Starting with Jesus' death in verse 18, this is what Peter says. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Focus on his death here. So Peter says, again, in case it wasn't clear, the reason why it's better to suffer for doing good is because Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that that he might bring us to God. That's why. That's why it's better. And so our willingness then, our willingness to suffer for the sake of the gospel, our willingness to go through heartache, hardship, trials for the sake of Christ, for doing good is grounded, it's rooted in the wonder of Jesus' willingness to suffer death for our sake. You see that? That when we understand Jesus' willingness to suffer for our sake, that will inspire us to suffer for his sake. That's where we're going today. You know, as I was thinking about this text, um, and this is sort of a side note this this morning, uh, but something I found amazing was just to think about the fact that, that Peter here it is once again, once again, bringing our attention to the cross. Once again, bringing us to the reality of Jesus as a suffering Savior. 
And the reason that amazes me is because let's not forget that Peter, Peter was at one time the guy who was strongly opposed to a suffering Savior. If you remember the story in Mark chapter 8, Jesus teaches his, Jesus teaches, excuse me, his disciples how he must suffer and die. He asks them, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter proclaims, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he explains to them, I, I need to go. I'm going to suffer and die for your, your sake. And how does Peter handle that news that his Christ, his Messiah, his Lord is going to go and suffer and die? How does Peter handle that news? Well, the text tells us, actually, they're sitting around a fire, the disciples. And Peter, you can sort of imagine this, grabs Jesus and takes him to the side, away from the rest. To lecture him. It's great. I love Peter. And basically, he said, he, the text actually says that he rebukes Jesus after confessing that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hey, I got to tell you something. You're wrong. <laughs> okay? And he rebukes him. And it probably went something like this. Like, there's absolutely no way. There's no way you're going to die, Jesus. I know they won't let that happen to you, but if they do, I'm not going to. And he's got a sword. We know, right? Peter has a sword. He brings it out later. He's got a sword. I'll never let that happen to you, right? Never going to happen. And of course, Jesus responds back to him with rebuke. He, okay, I'll take that rebuke and rebuke you back. And he says to him what? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> okay, it's pretty strong. <laughs> He says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of men. And so we have to understand, during Jesus' ministry, Peter didn't get it. He didn't understand. But now, now, here's that same Peter. The same one. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, clearly everything changed for him. Because now, here, Peter writes this and articulates in verse 18 the meaning of Jesus' suffering on the cross in one of the richest single-sentence descriptions in all of the New Testament. It's incredible. So where he once protested Jesus' suffering, he now not only understands the purpose, but emphasizes the purpose. And this is what he says. It's so profound. He says, Christ also suffered once for sins. Um, if, you, if you ever dare to, to underline, highlight, and circle in your Bible, if you're one of those, underline, circle, highlight in the margins, once for sins. Underline it, highlight it, write it somewhere. Once for sins. This is why Jesus suffered and died. For sins. As an offering for our sins. To pay the debt for our sins. And Peter here, Peter wonderfully, beautifully communicates all that rich theology. All of that rich gospel truth to us in just one word. One word. Once. Once. That word, oh my goodness, we could spend the rest of our time here today. That word, that word is so deep, 
so theological. It literally means once for all. But that word is so significant because because that word is the word that's used in the Old Testament over and over and over and over again in regards to the entire sacrificial system of the Jews that God has established. And so Peter here is clearly drawing a, a direct line from the Old Testament to say, those sacrifices back then that our people have been doing, those sacrifices were made for sins, for all of sins, for the totality of sins, but they were just a foreshadowing of the ultimate, here we go, once and for all sacrifice of Jesus for sins. Or let's simplify this. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, unlike the old sacrifices, was superior and sufficient. Those are two words for you to know. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient and superior. Which means, which means there is no need for this to be repeated. That when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, he boldly proclaimed, spoke out these words. It is finished. Why? Because his sacrifice was the sacrifice. And it was sufficient able to cover all of our sins. Well, then Peter continues. He says, the righteous for the unrighteous. In other words, Jesus' death was a once-for-all substitute. That's what he's saying here. That he was righteous, Jesus was righteous, didn't deserve to die. We were unrighteous, richly deserving of death, wrath, and separation from God forever. But he died in our place, submitted himself to the penalty that we deserved, suffered the punishment we deserved, and he did this, underwent this, so that we didn't have to, so that we would never have to. And honestly, Um, Honestly, it's hard to read this text when you understand what it's saying. What Peter's saying here in just these short words, it's hard to read this text and remain unaffected by it. It's hard to not be moved, to to be stirred by this. That Jesus, Jesus Christ, suffered for my sins The righteous one suffered the penalty and paid the price for the unrighteous ones, for me, for you. And why? Why would Jesus do such a thing? Well, Peter tells us that he might bring us to God. Isn't God so good? 
maybe I should just ask the worship team to come back right now. <laughs> we can just praise him for this. It'd be a good time to pause. It's just amazing, incredible gospel truth here. Jesus died once for our sins. As my substitute, in order to bring me, to bring me to God. He did this for sinners like me who were far from God, separated from God, with no desire in me to be reconciled to God. He died in my place for me so that he so that he could be with me so that a, so that a sinful person like me could be brought into the presence of a holy God into his marvelous light it's just stunning It's unbelievable. And so here's this this announcement from Peter here to these people who who are suffering, facing trials of many kinds. The announcement was this. The penalty for your sins has been paid for. The sacrifice of your substitute was sufficient and you have been brought to God so that he might be with you forever. That's the good news of the gospel, church family. And all this was achieved through Jesus' unjust suffering. So now you understand, I hope, Jesus' suffering it was not for nothing. It wasn't a road to, to a dead end. Not at all. His suffering was actually the path to victory. And if Jesus' suffering was secured, sorry, if Jesus' victory was secured through his suffering, follow me here, we can take heart then amidst our suffering as well. That's his message here. Peter begins with this incredible encouragement from the cross. And then he continues, Jesus' death isn't the only good news. There's more. We have a resurrection. We have a resurrection. Look at the arrest of verse 18 through 20 with me. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, we'll move on. Verse 21. Uh, (laughs) Now, this is is the hard part, okay? Okay. This is, the, this is the passage here. This is the text here where the scholars, all these New Testament scholars, where, where Luther struggled. And of course, if you read through this, just skim through it again, this text brings all sorts of questions, doesn't it? Where did Jesus go exactly? Uh, what did he do when he got there? When did he go? Who did he talk to? 
What did he say? Um, are we even supposed to take this literally? Here, you tell me. Okay. Um, let me say this um, as we move through this text. Um, I want you to know, this is not me, what I'm about to do. This is not me trying to avoid this text. But what I don't want to do is, is get too lost in the weeds here. So I'm going to address the, the surface of this text. But I'm not going to get into all of the major theories of what this means. Because here's actually the good news. What I want you to know is the good news. God is gracious this way. That regardless of your thoughts on the details here, we actually all end up at the same conclusion. So the goal is going to be to focus on the conclusion. Okay? So, so here's what we have. Here's what we have. Peter transitions here from the death of Jesus to the resurrection. That's why it says there, you can see, he was put to death but made alive. Okay? So the shift then goes from the death to the resurrection. And then, then, Peter takes this turn. And he says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And what I believe, what I believe this is referring to is Jesus' proclamation, declaration, his victory his judgment over all evil spirits, all evil things, all evil angels. Some historically have taught that this is saying that Jesus descended into hell uh, between his death and his resurrection. But I don't actually see that here. I don't think the the context even allows that. Um, I don't think, therefore, Jesus actually physically did that. Um. I believe Peter is saying that as Jesus rose, he was proclaiming his victory over these evil powers as the crucified and risen Lord. That's what I believe the core, the crux is of this text. Okay, that's really simple without a lot of detail for now, but I think that best fits the context of where Peter has been and where he's going with the rest of this passage, actually. That Peter here, Peter, is pointing to Jesus as the victor over all evil in both the human and the the, uh, spiritual spheres forevermore. That's the bottom line. That's what you need to focus on. That in Jesus' resurrection... He was making a bold, mighty proclamation, an announcement of his triumph over sin, Satan, and death. Now, some of you, um, because I I sympathize with some of you who, who love the deeper study. If that's you, if you love the deeper study, and you're still curious about all of this, um, I just want to encourage you personally, even this week, maybe tonight, to study this text. And I'll even point you to a really good resource. A good resource, um, actually, for all of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and the book of Jude. Um, It's simple, but I think it's pretty extensive. Um, It's a commentary called the New American Commentary. And that was put together by a a man named Thomas R. Schreiner. He's guided a lot of this 
series for me, actually. Thomas R. Schreiner. So if you're curious and you want to get into the evil spirits and, you know, his, this, you know where Jesus go, what he do, read Thomas R. Schreiner if you want to go there. But for now, for now, again, I just want to focus on the main point of this text for the sake of this message. That Peter is saying again, in case we got lost again. Peter is saying again that Jesus' resurrection was a proclamation a proclamation, a declaration, an announcement of his triumph in judgment over all evil. But before we leave this text, I want to talk about Noah. Noah. You You see mention of him there in verse 20. It says that God was patient in the days of Noah, particularly with Noah and the building of the ark, and that Noah and his family, it says, were brought safely through the waters. And so the question for us is, why Noah? (laughs) Why is Noah even, even mentioned here? Why does Peter refer to Noah? What's the relevance to Peter's audience? Well, to understand this, we, we need to put ourselves, once again, um, in, in the context and, and in first century shoes, or I guess they'd be first century sandals, okay? We've got to put first century sandals on, okay? Because the days of Noah, the days of Noah would have actually been very relevant to their first century present experience, See, we have to keep in mind that, that Peter, Peter was writing to a very, very small group of people in the midst of the, the mighty, grand Roman Empire. These people, these believers, they were really, they were nothing. I'm insignificant in the eyes of the world. And they were surrounded by a culture that was strongly in opposition to them. And think of this as well, think of this as well. The message that they were proclaiming at this time, it's our message too, but but the message in the context, it was way, way out there, their message, the gospel. They're going around teaching that a man, Jesus, who was executed by Rome on the cross, had had risen bodily, from the dead. And then after that, that's not enough, he ascended into heaven. That's the message. And they're going around, this group of people, telling people this. And in that context, you have two major groups. You have, in and around Jerusalem especially, you have the Jews and you have Roman citizens. To Jewish ears, think of Peter again. To Jewish ears, a crucified savior, it was heresy. A deep contradictory uh, contradiction. And to a first century Roman citizen, the claim, the claim that the salvation of the world came through a dead criminal would be absurd. Absurd. And to both the Jews and the Roman citizens, teaching that death could bring eternal life was idiocy. It's just foolish. It's just foolish in their philosophy. 
So the original readers understand their context. We're in a, such a different context. Christianity, you know, it's the biggest religion in the world. A lot of people know, or at least they've heard about Jesus in our message. The, these original readers would have felt so small. They were surrounded by idolatry of all kinds, encouraged idolatry. The world was hostile to them. The gospel message that they were preaching was viewed as a threat to their culture and the people around them. And so with that, with that, actually, how wise, how caring is it or was it of Peter to draw their attention to Noah, to to the experience, to the example of Noah and his family, who likewise faced all sorts of difficulty, heartache, ridicule, and unjust suffering. Noah and his family's story would have been so relatable to them. They feel, there's this weight, they they feel like they're going to be overwhelmed by a flood of, of evil. And so this reference to Noah is meant to put to put fresh resolve into their souls. To, to trust God. To, to not be afraid. Think of Noah. Don't be afraid. For, for it's better to suffer for doing good if it's God's will, just like Noah. That's what Peter's saying. Right? We know, we won't take the time to go all the way back to Genesis 6 and following and study all the way through it, but, but we know we know the world around Noah and his family was horrific. Deeply wicked. Deeply wicked. And it got so bad, so bad, read Genesis 6 and following, that God's patience with his creation eventually became exhausted. So that it caused him, it led him to bring judgment to the entire world, wiped everything out. It's a reset. But as for Noah and his family, they, they were saved by the mercy of God. And notice, if the text isn't back up there, can we put it back up there in case it's not? Notice it says there at the end of verse 20, I believe it is, it says there a few were saved, in which a few, it's key, a few were saved. Because again, remember the context. Peter is trying to encourage a small group of people, a few. He's trying to encourage the few. He says that in the days of Noah, even though it was horrific, persecution, trials, heartache, trouble, suffering, there were a few that were saved. So the clear message to them, to us, is this. Don't lose heart in the midst of your suffering. Noah's God is your God. And since Noah was preserved and protected, you will experience the same even as you endure suffering. What a comfort. What a comfort. Well, Peter not only considered Noah and his experience as, a, as relevant to the original readers and those who suffer, those of us who suffer, 
but also uh, in relation to the meaning of baptism. So let's keep going. Verse 21. He sort of takes a major shift here, but it's really relevant when you understand where we're going. He says this, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what's, what's Peter saying here? Okay, well, Peter here, I think it's actually fairly simplistic. Peter here is just drawing, drawing a picture here with his words, that as Noah's salvation from the judgment of God was connected with water, so too the Christian salvation is connected with water, the water of baptism. Think of it this way. Think of it this way. That as the, as the water of the flood, God's flood, as that water washed away sin and wickedness and brought about a new world, a fresh start, a new beginning with God, the water of baptism does the same thing. It provides a sort of a passage, if you will, from the old to the new. That's the connection here. And at the same time, I know how it reads there in English, but we got to be careful and spend just 30 seconds here. Um, it, it says there, baptism now saves you. That's what it says in English. Whoa, wait a second. Um, but if you look at the text carefully, we see actually that Peter is, is very careful to, to point out that's not the case. So it's funny that that's, again, why this, this, this passage is sort of confusing. Because it says baptism saves you, but what he's really telling us emphatically is baptism does not save you. Okay? So let's, let's look at that. Um, what we see here is that Peter's careful to point out that it actually, it isn't the actual water washing of baptism that saves us but the spiritual reality behind going under and coming out of the water. That what really saves us, Peter says, what really saves you, two things. He says it after this. He says, is a good conscience before God, which, he's explained to us previously, a conscience that can only be made right with God through the completed work of Jesus Christ. Namely, he says, through his resurrection. See that? That's what Peter is saying here. So baptism, we know this from here and from the rest of the New Testament, baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's the easiest way I could say it. It's an outward sign, a symbol of an inward reality. The reality of your regeneration your new life. It's a display that we too, that you too have passed through the waters of judgment and that we have been raised with new life, with new hope, with victory in Jesus. 
It, it displays to the world. Baptism displays that we are not, praise God, we are not among those who have been left under the water, facing the just judgment of God. No, we, we are among those who have been united by faith to Jesus and have risen to new life out of the waters of judgment. This is why Jesus commands, by the way, this is really important. This is why Jesus commands, commands every follower of Jesus to be baptized. Not as some legalistic box to check off, but as a sign, as a symbol that you are now united to the one who has passed through judgment for you. It shows that you have been cleansed of your sin because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it points to the reality, the reality of your shared victory with Jesus' resurrection and the future hope of your bodily resurrection when Jesus calls you home. That's baptism. That's what it displays. So if you're a follower of Jesus uh, here, here today, if you're here today, you're a follower of Jesus, if you're watching online, I know many of you are, um, and you've never been baptized, you've never been baptized, Jesus lovingly commands you to it. Commands you to it for your joy and his glory as a profound means of grace in your life. And so I guess that's my unashamed sort of uh, pitch or, or plug for baptism. Get baptized. Be baptized. Go to our website. Go to our digital connect card. Go to the comments at the end. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've never been baptized. I've never gone under the water, come out to declare that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, that I'm sharing with him in his death and resurrection. I've never done that. I want to do that. Um, those of you who are watching online um, and you've never been to our physical space, you won't know this. Um, and I'm sorry I can't pan the camera up this t- for you to see this. But um, actually behind me, um, this wall right here, there's a big screen here that everybody in person can see. That screen actually raises up and there's some glass back there. There's a cross there. There's actually a baptismal tank up there. Okay? And so we'll do that, all right? I need to get that approved by the government. I don't know if there's got to be masks on, if we have to go into, like, spacesuits when we're up there. Whatever it takes, hazmat suits, I'll pay for it. If you want to be baptized, we've we got to do this, all right? Jesus commands it, okay? We'll do it, and then we'll say sorry later. <laughs> all right, we'll do it. With masks on, with a helmet on, whatever you've got to do. Okay, it's worth it. It's worth it for you to be baptized. Baptism It's my favorite ordinance. It's my favorite thing that we do as a body of believers. It's deeply encouraging. So if if you'd like to be baptized, you've never done that, you've never done that, um, let let us know. We'd love to partner with you in baptism and explain baptism more to you, okay? So, again, Peter addresses the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, but he doesn't end there. Actually, I think a lot of times um, we do end there. We talk, about, we talk about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel, right? 
period, stop. Um, that's not the, the whole thing. It's not the end of the story. Peter doesn't end there because it's not the end of the story. He ends actually with the ascension of Jesus, which wraps up the passage for us today. It's verse 22. Listen to these words. Maybe you can imagine now being the few. You know, you're going through amidst of these trials and heartache. Um, you're being encouraged by the death and the resurrection, but you're, there's still fear around you. And then you listen to these words, this letter from Peter, that through the resurrection, through the resurrection, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is, it, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, by God's grace, um, this is actually pretty straightforward. Finally. Okay. <laughs> pretty clear. Um, universally debated above, universally accepted here. Okay. What Peter is saying here is that following, following his death, following Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus went up. He was brought up, caught up. He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God. Which, which I believe, um, is he there with God? Yes. But is he literally sitting down all the time, all I don't think the text lends itself to that. I think this is figurative language. If he's seated there, great. If he's standing there, awesome. The point, it's not the point. Okay, this, is, this is figurative language, meaning that Jesus, Jesus Christ has supreme power and authority in the universe. That's what it means. Peter says that all angels, all powers, all demonic forces, all authorities are subject to him. It means, it means that Jesus has the first and last word on everything. That no one, nothing, no circumstance is outside of his control. Everything, everyone bows beneath the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Why? Because Jesus has triumphed over the guilt of our sin and has paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Because Jesus has triumphed over the power of death through his resurrection. Because Jesus has triumphed over hell, death, and proclaimed his triumph to the spirits. And because Jesus has triumphed over all in his ascension, meaning that all are subject to him. The one, all are subject to the one who is seated at, the only one who is seated at, positioned at the right hand of the Father. And what, what a heart comfort this is. What peace, what peace, what courage, what boldness does this bring to us that Jesus has gone into heaven is seated at the right hand of God. And now, listen, don't miss this. Now, everything, everything is subjected to him. And now do you see what a difference, what a difference knowing that reality makes for you trying to survive in this world? 
Do you see how that gospel reality changes our relationships now? We're going to tie First Peter. I'm going to do it for you right now. Do you see how now that changes our relationship to the government, to your job, how we treat each other as male and female, how we treat each other as husband and wife? Do you see how this changes your approach to being hated, despised, reviled for your faith? How it changes your perspective when you suffer all kinds Peter has been commanding us over and over and over again, be subject to, submit yourself, submit yourself, submit yourself to all these people, all these positions. We've talked about this for weeks, over and over and over again, be subject, be subject. And now here, now here, listen, what does Peter say? Everything, everything has been made subject to the Lord. Everything. He rules and reigns over it all. So now, church, do you understand? We can be subject to others freely, gracefully, peacefully, because we know that ultimately everything and everyone is subject to the Lord. This changes everything for you. Everything. That if you are, right now, if you find yourself on the margins of life because of your faith, this means everything. If you've ever been hated, mocked, put down, if you've ever suffered, ever faced a trial, any time from now on, any time, this should change you. Any time you're now downcast, discouraged, facing a valley season of life, this Perspective, this new gospel reality perspective should transform your soul. The good news and the truth that Jesus, He reigns over all. Which means the passage today for us is now. You can see why it's so clear. The passage is clear nothing that comes against you, nothing that comes against you is outside of the risen, living, saving Lord and King. He rules over all, rules over everything, including your very own life. He rules over your heartache. He has authority over your trials. He has power over your suffering. Not your highest of highs in this life, not your, not your lowest of lows in this life is outside of his plan. None of it. And somehow, some way, even when we can't see it, even when we don't believe it, we're walking around those walls again and again. We can be assured that he is working everything out, everything out for our good and for his glory. So we are to be assured today this is such a great encouragement. We're, we're to have a gospel confidence today that because, that because Jesus suffered for doing good, because of his death, resurrection, and ascension, he has prevailed over sin, Satan, and death. And he has done this. He has done this in order to bring us to God. I want to ask the worship team to come up. I'm going to keep going for a second.
And so listen, listen. Don't let them coming up distract you. <laughs> listen. Though our lives, though your life today may be paved, may be paved with hardship, with difficulty, with suffering, understand, understand that that is not a sign that you are on the wrong path. So you got to figure out how to get off it and get on the right path. No, it's actually a sign. It's actually a sign that we are, that you are on the right path because that's the same path that Jesus himself walked. The bottom line for us today, it's, it's simple, it's this. Jesus' suffering, Jesus' suffering ultimately led to his victory. And if we endure suffering, we will share in that victory as well. So church family, take heart. Let me encourage you this morning. Take heart amidst the suffering, amidst the hardship, amidst the heartache that you face. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Stay the course. Don't give up. Don't fear. Because your victory, listen, someone needs to hear this. Your victory is coming. Glory is coming. Your Savior has already secured it for you in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. Would you stand with me? Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate and worship the risen and exalted King. Let's worship together.